You are listening to the Future of Asia podcasts by McKinsey and Company. I am Oliver Tonby, your host and chairman of McKinsey Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to discuss the forces, the opportunities, and the challenges that are shaping the future of Asia. Welcome, welcome everybody to uh, the Future of Asia podcast series. This episode is about ASEAN and the specific question around, can ASEAN retain its growth trajectory? I am joined by three distinguished colleagues. I'm joined by Kaushik Das, who leads McKinsey's ASEAN uh, region, by D.Y. Lim, who leads our Singapore location, as well as public sector across Asia. And I am joined by Joy Deep Sengupta, who leads our CEO practice, which includes corporate finance, organization, and strategy practices. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to this episode. Let me just kick us off on a personal note. Would love to hear from you how, how has COVID affected you personally over the last few months? What are the learnings you've had? Kaushik. COVID, of course, is a, is a very difficult situation, both from an economic perspective and from a health perspective. But just on the personal side, there have been some silver linings too. I have spent more time at home in the last seven months than I have in the previous 20 years combined. Watching my daughters grow up, which might sound like a perfectly normal thing for, for, for most people to do, but watching my daughters grow up every day, every evening, is a huge new experience for many of us based in Singapore. Thank you, Kaushik. D.Y.? I guess a couple of pluses and minuses. It has been challenging not to see family. I have family uh, kind of scattered across the world, so we've not gathered since uh, Chinese New Year. So that's been uh, one big challenge. On the positive side, I think the work from home has developed a whole new routine, like Kaushik, you know, having meals at home, spending time sort of, you know, just at home and actually the efficiencies of no makeup, no heels and spending a lot of time in yoga pants has actually been quite enjoyable. And D.Y., I think you, you are known as a foodie. Have you been able to keep tasting different foods uh, alive over the last uh, months? Yes, very much so, actually, partially because I have been cooking a lot more. When we've been allowed to, we've had friends over, up to uh, five friends over, and that's been good. And I think the third is that we have now become very acquainted with the takeout service of every major restaurant across uh, Singapore. So COVID has not provided us any excuses in continuing to overeat on occasion. And unlike, I suppose, many of our colleagues, perhaps a lot less uh, activity and exercise. Joy Deep, over to you. Oliver, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. Uh, an emotional roller coaster. And uh, depending on when you ask me this question, I'm either on a high or a low. So typically my highs have been, you know, clearly like Kaushik and DY, getting to spend far more time at home. I probably spent more time at home than this year than in the last 20, right? So it's, that, you know, and you talk of compression of years in minutes, I, I, I now get to really realize what that means. The other thing I've also enjoyed quite a lot during this time is connecting, ironically, connecting with many, many more people than I could uh, simply because of the technology that's available. So that's been, those have been some highs. On the lows, you know, to be honest, I mean, uh, COVID has touched me in many ways 
worse than I thought. I I've got to know real deep personal friends who've gone who've got COVID, who've gone through fairly taxing times, and that's been very very sad actually. And and I have felt emotionally drained just looking at their experience. At the same time, I think if you if you look at some of the other things, I I begin to now miss, ironically, being with people. <laughs> I am an introvert, so that sounds a bit weird. Normally, I normally in the olden days I used to enjoy being you know finding times to get away from people. Now I kind of feel the longing to be with people. and so that kind of leads me to the conclusion that human beings are never satisfied with what we have. Very good. Thank you all all three of you. Listen, let's dig into the topic of hand uh, ASEAN and can ASEAN retain its growth trajectory. Kashik, let me start with you. Why, why don't you tell us why are you excited about ASEAN uh, in the first place? Well, ASEAN for most people evokes images of of sunshine, beaches, ocean, water, great food, history, there's a feeling of exoticness around asean but i would actually say that there is more to asean than than just that and this is a good time to be rethinking asean you know first you know just to start with the numbers i mean there are big numbers about asean that people often miss you know 650 million people a 3 trillion dollar economy across the 10 countries of southeast asia robust growth you know come come sunshine come rain Economies in ASEAN have been growing at an average of about five percent through everything over the last twenty odd years. There's a young demography that's growing up, but beyond all of that, I think there are other factors that people sometimes miss. You know, one is a leapfrogging population. So, just to give you an example, you know, ten years ago, if you went to Jakarta, very few people used even credit cards. You 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 couldn't pay for. for petrol at a gas station using a credit card today indonesia is at the forefront of digital payment systems it's actually leapfrogged you know traditional banking and some of the most innovative payment players are in indonesia a different example with all the geopolitical tensions uh, all the partisanship that we hear, hear about this is one part of the world that could actually bring together the best of the east and the best of the west So for example this is one part of the world where we see you know US innovation or, or american driven innovation combined with you know chinese driven phenomena whether it's in banking whether it's in you know digital platforms you know there is potential for asean to borrow to learn from many other parts of the world and then to come up with models that work in the rest of of the emerging world. Fantastic. Thank you Kashik. Let me just ask Joy Deep and DY. So do you share Kashik's enthusiasm about ASEAN? DY. Very much so. I think there are a couple of angles in which we can look at this, right? Number 1 is how ASEAN is coming through COVID, right? And I think if we look at what the governments and private sector have collaborated to do, be it from the large fiscal stimulus many of the uh, governments have put out you know as high as nearly 20% of gdp in malaysia and singapore but also the collaboration that the public sector and the private sector have worked together in terms of tracing during covid in terms of healthcare provision in terms of working together to get economies back going right so i think just their ability to come through covid 
is an indication of ASEAN strength. That would be one thing I point to. And I think part of that magic has been, as I said, the public-private working together. But in some cases, actually, we see the beginnings of ASEAN nations coming together and collaborating as well. And I think with that, they will emerge much stronger. So I completely share the enthusiasm. And maybe there are two two reasons which give me real um, hope for optimism. I think the first is on the consumer side. I think what COVID has done is dramatically accelerated uh, digital penetration across industries and across sectors. And what's that done is it's brought a whole range of new customers, the new consuming class, as I would call it, into the fold. So consumption is, as you know, one of the biggest drivers of growth. And, and that that is one trend which I see accelerating. If I look at the other side, the, there are two macro trends which are very interesting to me. One is trade flows and the other is capital flows. And when I look at trade flows, I think I look at even despite everything that's happening, if you look at Chinese exports into markets like Thailand, Vietnam, Malaysia, they've gone up significantly. If you look at capital flows, you look at the Japanese capital, Korean capital, investing heavily in Indonesia, investing heavily in the Philippines, investing heavily in Vietnam. So both the shift in trajectory of trade flows and capital flows gives me a lot of optimism about the long-term benefits uh, to the economies in both of these countries, in, 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 the, in the region. And Joydeep, maybe just to add on that, right, because you talked about trade flow, capital flows. Kaushik talked about the geopolitical kind of tensions we live in. And I think one beneficiary of that will be ASEAN, right? Whether we see the uh, flow of technology coming from both China and the US kind of merging and almost, you know, uh, evolving into something new and with an ASEAN identity, right? I think these are all opportunities that we're actually seeing uh, happening and perhaps even accelerating as a result of, of COVID. Thank you. And, and we're going to come back to some of these things around, let me call it some of the forward-looking opportunities as well as challenges. But I wanted to take one step back first and ask Kaushik, if you look at how, how has COVID affected ASEAN and how would you contrast that to some of the other parts of the world, perhaps? Oliver, on COVID, there's been On the whole, I would say ASEAN is coming through better than many other parts of the world, but it's a bit of a mixed story. At one end, there are countries like Thailand and Vietnam, uh, which have actually managed the situation very well. they've They've gone many weeks without major community transmission. And to all, um, as much as we can see, companies and people are going about their daily daily life in, in a very normal way. At the other end, we've had Philippines, which has been very badly affected, which has gone through some very restrictive lockdowns and is only now starting to emerge from some of those lockdowns. We've got Indonesia somewhere in the middle. There have been some question marks around the numbers and around the data and so on. But the country is kind of finding its way through. Right? Overall, if you look at, look, look at an aggregate basis, you know, ASEAN transmission levels are roughly a 15th that of the U.S., they're about a tenth that of Europe. So overall, you know, COVID has had impact, but ASEAN is doing better than we might have hoped. Now, if I look at government response across these countries, outside of Singapore and maybe to some extent Malaysia, governments have struggled 
to provide the kind of stimulus that many of the Western governments have provided. And even in cases where they have provided the stimulus, theoretically, you know, from, from a budgetary perspective, they've struggled to get money into the hands of the most vulnerable people in these countries, right? So there are risks. There are risks. Some people are worried about the oncoming, you know, the next three months, just in terms of how COVID pans out. Is there a resurgence or not? Do we see a, West, a, a European style or an American style resurgence? But for now, things seem to be getting better. Thank you. So let's shift now and start talking about what are some of those opportunities that you see across ASEAN? Let me start with Joy Deep. In, in my mind, I think I, I touched upon some of those opportunities, but I would say the single biggest opportunity certainly arises from the shift in supply chains that we are beginning to see across the world. I don't think it's a one-off. I think it's a fundamental trend break. And I think the shift from, you know, focusing purely on efficiency, which is a just-in-time to just-in-case, is real for ASEAN. And I think ASEAN is the single biggest beneficiary, whether it's Vietnam, whether it's the Philippines, whether it's Thailand, across, across multiple types of manufacturing. You've seen more recently Apple moving a bunch of its manufacturing capabilities into uh, Vietnam, for example. And I think that's just the first signs of uh, what is to come. So that's, that's one, uh, one area where I see a significant opportunity in ASEAN. The other thing I would just point to is that one thing which, and, and, I, and I alluded to it when I talked about the growth in consumption, but I would also say that one thing which COVID has done is the acceleration of digital in a way that is quite unique at just the scale and speed at which companies are deploying and investing in digital. What that means is that the single biggest thing which held, I think, in my opinion, which held ASEAN back was inclusion. And I think we are seeing large groups of demographics in many of the fastest growing ASEAN nations coming into the fold, if you may, whether it's in terms of getting access to finance, whether it's in terms of getting access to goods and services at cheap price, and whether it is indeed businesses being able to operate in a very different way and getting access to, to buyers around the world on platforms. So I think these kind of trend breaks create real opportunities across the spectrum, both from consumers on the one hand to large companies and SMEs. Actually, you know, uh, Joydeep talked about inclusiveness. Let, 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 let me share a story here. Uh, about a year and a half ago, Oliver, we, we were doing some research across Indonesia and we had teams in central Java that, that were you know, looking for how digital might be impacting the lives of ordinary citizens. We came across a small manufacturer. Uh, in fact, even manufacturer is overstating it. A small maker of wooden dolls. So, you know, they make ducks, hens, you know, animals out of wood. And they're a small roadside stall where they'd be selling it. And they'd sell a few a week to somebody that kind of walks by or some car that stops and buys some painted doll. And then somebody in the family came back from college and set up a small website for them. And purely out of chance, an Australian retailing company kind of came upon these wooden dolls and ordered a few. And suddenly there was this Australian retailer that was selling wooden dolls made by this small maker, you know, in, in, in central Java. And sales took off, took off as in, you know, uh, it went from a few a week to 
tens a week and then to hundreds a week. And this Australian retailer started teaching these folks about using better quality paint, you know, getting the right colors that are most attractive to consumers in Australia. And now these guys actually sell wooden dolls, still wooden. So now the small maker of wooden dolls is selling dolls in 16 different countries using digital technology, earning money that they would have never earned before. So just picking up on the inclusiveness uh, theme that Joydeep talked about, digital, I actually think, is democratizing the economy of these countries. It could fundamentally shift power and prosperity in ways that we would not have thought possible 10 years ago. And I also picked up from both of you that, you know, these are trends that started well before COVID. Is that correct? These are not new trends. Uh, these are trends which existed maybe in the last five, six years they were building up. But what COVID did, it, it provided acceleration in a way which is quite unprecedented in terms of speed. Right. And I think that's the big shift that we've seen. Thank you. Oliver, if I may, sorry. Go for it, do I? Jody Pankashit were talking about the acceleration of trends and the, you know, coming out of COVID and how that has led to various economic opportunities, right? I think there's also another angle here. If we look at some of what we would have considered to be more resilience-driven measures, right? So during COVID, every country focused on their healthcare system as a, you know, how do we ensure that provision to their population. There was a focus on food resilience. How do we ensure that now that supply chains and logistics have been disrupted, we can continue to, to feed and take care of our people? I think there are also many countries who have turned these resilience trends into growth opportunities. So for example, what used to be focused around food security and stockpiling, I think has now been looked as as a growth in agriculture and ag tech, right? So how do we not just think about sufficiency for our people, but actually with the use of technology, think about it being a growth engine, right? So, you know, particularly in Indonesia, in the Philippines, in Thailand, where, you know, land is available, where there's already quite a strong agriculture background, you know, there's always an opportunity to, to take that to the, to the next level using technology. And we've seen countries begin to invest behind that. Similarly with, with healthcare, the, the discussion has moved partly because they've been quite effective beyond just, you know, kind of base provision of supporting our population to how do we incorporate the use of technology and really scale the provision of health care and this has sparked a whole set of new investments into the health tech space, right? So I think it's not just about, you know, the positive side of trends that were accelerating, but also how countries have been quite effective in using these resilience levers and in turning them into growth opportunities. Asia's standing in the world has changed. And it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. Thank you. Now, if you look across these trends, what are some of the sectors you would highlight going forward? 
I think at the risk of kind of stating the obvious, I think, you know, we've seen what we call the great acceleration in terms of the bifurcation between beneficiaries or sectors which have benefited disproportionately versus sectors which have suffered as an outcome of this crisis. And I think what you what you look at is things like all of the sectors impacted by technology, technology companies, e-commerce companies, healthcare, uh, many of these sectors have benefited and will continue to benefit disproportionately. On the other hand, on the other end of the spectrum, you look at oil and gas, resource-heavy industries, airlines, of course, and all of the travel industry, financial services, surprisingly, but perhaps unsurprisingly, old financial services have all got hit quite significantly. And what you find is that the fall in market capitalization of these companies has been anywhere between 40 to 60% of the pre So they're back almost seven, eight years. If you look at Southeast Asia, for example, they're back seven, eight years, back to the 2012, 13 levels, which means seven, eight years of value creation has been fundamentally destroyed for many of these sectors. The one thing I would just point though is, which I find in particular quite interesting is, even within these sectors, both if you would call the winners and those who are uh, losing out, you do find a big dispersion between companies in those sectors. And that dispersion has got amplified. So we use the words great amplification. And I think that's a, that's a very interesting terminology because when a crisis hits, the winners and, the, and those who don't win, effectively the gap widens. And this crisis, like others, but even more so, has enhanced that amplification significantly. And this is true sector by sector, whether a sector is on the positive side of this, of the impact of COVID or on the negative side. And Joydeep, maybe just to pick up on on your point around dispersion, I think that is most relevant for the sectors in your bifurcation sort of uh, spectrum that are in the middle, right? So take retail, right? Retailers who were quick to adopt technology, who had e-commerce, were able to get to the nirvana of kind of omni-channels, actually allowed themselves to shift a little bit towards the technology farmer end. Those that were, you know, completely brick and mortar focused, who weren't able to pivot towards adding logistics and delivery, sort of, you know, were very much closer to the oil and gas end, right? So, the dispersion point, I think, in, in many ways, for me, is the most important. It's the one way you almost escape or at least leapfrog the curse of your sector, right? So you don't have to be completely capped by the fate of your sector. It's a, it's a very good point you make, D.Y., and I'll just maybe just take 30 seconds and amplify a couple of those. I think, one, if you look at the publishing sector, for example, publishing sector has historically always been driven by advertising revenue, and that's obviously fallen. But there are others who have shifted their business model towards subscription revenues, getting into new lines, right? And, you know, so there are companies in the publishing space which have actually seen their market cap go up by 15, 20, 30 percent, while the whole sector actually has fallen by 30 to 40 percent. That's one, one, one illustration of people who make that shift, given some of these trends and are actually benefiting and being rewarded by investors for making that shift. Got it. Now, we've talked about the opportunities Let's shift and talk about what, what are some of the fundamental challenges that you see? Because the picture is probably not all rosy. Kaushik. 
Look, I think I think there are a number of challenges, and and if these are not addressed adequately, they can actually lead to massive social unrest. So our research shows, you know, some fifteen million, fifteen odd million people will be displaced as a result of technological change accelerated by COVID. Indonesia itself might have seven, eight, nine million people workers, you know, that get displaced from their usual mode of work. Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam will all have significant numbers of people in the same bucket. So you know the challenge of training and reskilling people at scale, reskilling SMEs and micro SMEs at scale. Now there is a positive side to all of this. Our research also shows that if governments get it right. Then all this change can actually create two x or three x the number of new jobs that that get you know two x or three x as many as get displaced. Dwy Kosak mentioned the role of government there. You lead our public sector across Asia. What what are your thoughts on the role of government going forward? I think we'll see actually a greater emphasis and importance in the role of government, and I think COVID has highlighted that. Let me get specific on a couple of points. Number one is every government clearly has to play a big role in healthcare provision, be it creating the right、uh, regulatory environment for private providers or themselves being a a provider. And I think that's going to be、uh, one role that will definitely continue, if not increase over time. Secondly, Kaushik had talked about reskilling. There is no way, I think, in at least in in my mind, that we can. Get reskilling at scale without some form of support or partnership from governments. Right, they will have to be a a key player in that. In some cases, as funders; in some cases, as providers; and perhaps more importantly, in orchestrating the various players to undertake that reskilling process. For me, those would be two. Where we see governments playing a an increasingly、uh, important role. The third is, I think, governments who use this opportunity to really perhaps pivot in terms of focus or economic clusters、uh, will emerge stronger. Right. So, like companies, where should governments invest? Which are the sectors that we say, coming out of COVID, I've got as a country a competitive advantage, and I want to invest、uh, behind that. And I think that will become quite important part and role of government moving forward. So, those would be my sort of you know three that we inevitably cannot run from, and we we will all expect government. To play a bigger and more important、um, role in. If I may just make、um, one point on your question to both Karshik and Dy, you know, one thing which worries me the most, and by far the most, is geopolitics. I think we are used to living in in ASEAN, in a most stable environment. And if you look at the ASEAN, it's been the perfect、uh, partner to both. The North America as well as to China, and I think one of the biggest dangers、uh, that I, I I see in in the world moving forward is the need to choose sides, right? And I think if it comes to that, I think we and most countries in ASEAN will struggle to find the balance. I think that that worries me a lot. The other thing 
which bothers me a lot is the reaction to what's happening today in terms of the inward looking focus most countries are adopting and that could act as a barrier to talent act as a barrier to capital act as potentially a barrier to trade as people begin to put up tariffs so i think that vision of the world which is a more insular world is something which uh, worries me a lot and compounded by the fact that none of us know you know the massive amount of stimulus money that has been poured in into the world and will continue to be poured in what is the long term impact of that in terms of economic stability so those are some of the macro themes which i think will impact asean in particular given the the unique geographical location of most of the countries where it is look and the relationships that is had with the two major superpowers Jodi I wholeheartedly agree with you and I actually think that the strength of ASEAN is almost if we can be the antithesis of the two points that you raised right to remain a bridge between China and Europe and the US right to actually be where you know everybody can come that would be the first and I think that the power of ASEAN will be at its best if it actually collaborates amongst itself rather than look inward right asean you know by definition each and every country has its various strengths a lot of their strengths are actually complementary to each other as nations and if you almost imagine a a value chain in any sector you know every country can play a part in that value chain right and so you know in combination and with collaboration across nations asean in many ways can almost be the the perfect sector or the perfect environment right and so if there was a way for us to remain sort of you know where we are today right you know partners to the world without picking sides and to continue to collaborate rather than be nationalistic i think asean will really very much be at its best So thank you DY. No DY you talked about the collaboration and you know ASEAN is a a collection of 10 different countries. Kashik, you know all these countries very well. Could you make a few of them just come alive for us? What are some of the strengths and what do we have to look forward to in in a few of the countries? Well Oliver, you know ASEAN has you know I mentioned before uh, ASEAN is blessed with enormous diversity. And you know as you look across our countries, you know some of the diversity kind of comes through. you look at vietnam at one end you know large large population good infrastructure under the circumstances now it's starting to strain now but you know good infrastructure reasonably disciplined productive workforce and you you get the recipe for a surge in manufacturing the ideal location for companies to go to as they diversify their production bases you move from there to indonesia you know there are the large numbers the alluring numbers large numbers large size large scale diversity many religion many languages across multiple islands uh, and then you 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 get a government that sounds determined to open the aperture for you know for more flexibility around manufacturing policies labor policies welcoming investment from the private sector and from from outside of of indonesia it could make for a very interesting five years if the government is able to see through some of some of the aperture widening but but do it in a in a socially in a socially acceptable fashion it could lead for a very interesting it could make for a very interesting five years to come 
At the other end, you know, we've got we've got countries that are blessed with natural resources. You know, again, Vietnam, Indonesia, but also Malaysia. You know, their ability, some parts of Thailand, the ability of these countries to harness their their natural resources, combine them with their ability to attract foreign talent, you know, could make for for very interesting years to come. In some ways, Philippines is often is often left out. You know. People often point to the fact that over, if you take if you take a fifty year view of things, Philippines hasn't quite grown as fast as many of the other countries. But our research shows over the last ten years, the Philippines economy has grown consistently at about six percent, and is poised to 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 continue to grow at that pace, or could even accelerate. And this is despite a degree of political turbulence from a domestic perspective. And and in some ways, I'm I'm kind of saving, you know, probably the country that's best known to the world uh, for the last, and that's Singapore. You know, Singapore has historically been known to make long-term bets, to be looking out ten years, twenty years, thirty years into the future, and to be investing ahead of the curve. And we see a lot of evidence of the Singapore government doing that again now. Uh, we've seen Singapore taking the lead uh, on working, you know, governments working with SMEs, industries to train up people. It's probably been one of the first in the world doing that at scale. We've seen the government taking a very structured view around sectors that will become important in the future, investing in clean, you know, agri-tech. I mean, who would have thought Singapore would be thinking about technology and agriculture? But, you know, they're investing or, or exploring vertical farming, you know, urban farming. And some of these things would have application to other countries around ASEAN. One trend that I think is often overlooked, you know, very often the perception of ASEAN economies is, you know, you, you think about giant state-owned companies. Or you think about giant family-run conglomerates. And there is always a whiff of, you know, who knows what, these, what their management practices are like. There, you know, ASEAN countries often lack the Western-style, publicly listed, professionally run companies, or, or, so, or so is the perception. But if you actually look across many of our countries, you look at Thailand, you look at Vietnam, you look at Indonesia, uh, you know, Singapore, you know, for, for, for quite some time, we see second generation, third generation of families taking over. And these are often people that have been educated in the best universities of the world, and then they've come back home to take charge of their businesses. And what we're seeing is this huge hunger for being right up there, you know, globally, whether it's, you know, governance practices in many of these companies or its responsiveness to the environment, being socially responsible, or it's, it's doing the right thing for your workers or adopting Industry 4.0 technologies. I actually think people often underestimate the power of change being driven by the new generation of corporate leaders in these countries. Thank you all for, for, for that. Let me, let me shift now and start, you know, I want to ask Joy Deep, you speak to many CEOs and many companies, you know, what are the two or three things that are on top of their minds? And these are the ASEAN CEOs. Thank you, Oliver. I think obviously a lot of the trends we talked about provide the background in some ways to how I find many CEOs in the region thinking about it. Maybe one, one important um, aspect which also defines the thinking is, you know, how did they enter COVID? And, and I think what is quite interesting is, you know, like COVID impacts, you know, people with pre-existing conditions 
more adversely. It also impacted people with pre-existing pre economic conditions equally adversely. And I think that we've seen coming into the crisis, you had a scenario where more than 80% of companies in ASEAN were not returning their cost of capital fundamentally. And I think what ASEAN has, uh, what uh, COVID has done is really put pressure on this very significantly. So typically, I think there are, if I had to look at, there are three or four things which certainly are on people's minds. One, very clearly, I think people are asking the question, CEOs are asking the question, if I look at this amplification between winners and losers, how do I get to be a winner? And what do I need to do to position myself coming out of this crisis successful as opposed to those who are, who are not going to come out of this successfully? And there are four, four things uh, which in particular a lot of them are focusing on. One goes without saying doubling down the investments in digital and analytics as a way to really transform and change the business model to both adapt to this dramatic induction of digital in the way consumers are adopting their purchase patterns and so on. So it's no longer about incremental, let's do digital on the side or let's do a pilot on the hobby. Can we do it at scale? So that's, that's kind of the first thing which we are seeing. I think the second, and in particular, I think this goes to many ASEAN conglomerates, is that you know, there is a really serious rethink at their portfolio of businesses because it goes without saying that in the good times, a number of businesses had continued in the way they had and people didn't really care about where they're returning the cost of capital, et cetera, et cetera. Now the time has come and for many of them to rethink which businesses do they really want to grow and build in? How do they think about capital allocation? And in the cases of businesses they want to really expand in, how do you think about M&A as the vehicle to do that, as well as divestments of existing businesses, which no longer make sense for them to be in. So there's a big rethink for many of the CEOs around the portfolio of businesses they are in. And this is true both for conglomerates, but also for single business companies, which have different and diverse functions or businesses within them, subsegments and businesses within them. The third is, I think, just something around speed. Right. And I think what COVID has demonstrated is uh, the need to operate at speed, organizations at speed to really rethinking the organization model for speed, for nimbleness. So there is a lot of acceleration in the whole organization model around agility. There is much more focus on having faster decision making and speed in execution. So speed has become the new mantra in some ways for many of our CEOs. And last but not the least, and I say this last, it perhaps I should say this first, is that the notion of purpose has come, become front and center in the minds of many CEOs. The question of why are we here? Why are we in this business? You know, DY talked about the role of government. Kaushik talked about the role of society and inclusions. I think CEOs are asking the question, who are we here for? What business are we in? And who are our owners? Is it just the shareholders or are we serving a broader set of stakeholders and really emphasizing the role of purpose is becoming extremely critical and very much on top of their minds. I would point to these four things. Uh, well, you know, maybe I, I'd like to point out, you know, on the converse side, I think one thing that, that not enough ASEAN CEOs have on their mind, but, but I, 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 I would wish for them to spend a bit more time thinking about it which is opportunities from ESG area, you know, particularly environmental sustainability driven opportunities. 
I think very often in ASEAN, these are kind of dismissed as Western phenomena or, you know, something that's not yet relevant to us. But, but, but I think if you look across our countries, you know, the use of, you know, you, t- you take renewable energy as, as an example, the use of, you know, geothermal, use of solar power, there is just so much more opportunity to come. We are seeing some, some steps. I mean, Malaysia has just installed uh, solar, you know, cell manufacturing capacity that is actually quite, quite large. I think some four gigawatts of manufacturing uh, capacity that would make them the third largest in Asia. Singapore has, has, has obviously been experimenting in this space, but there are lots, lots more opportunities. You know, electric vehicles, battery manufacturing, given that in many of the cases, you know, raw materials resources are available in, in, uh, within the region. We, I would say that, that there is a lot more opportunity coming. Energy transition will come. Our younger, our younger folks, at least folks that I talk to, we interact with, are just as interested in the environment as they are anywhere else in the world. And I would, I would urge our governments and our corporate leaders to be more thoughtful about opportunities in this space. In addition to the ESG topic, there's one other topic that could be a game changer in, in ASEAN, which is unleashing the power of ASEAN's women. Uh, if you actually look at history in Thailand, in Indonesia, women have always been a very important contributor to the economy and have often comprised half or more of, uh, of, of the workforce in, in many sectors. You know, our research shows that if, if ASEAN can train up its women and unleash them, uh, really you know, get to 50% participation in the economy, it would release something like you know, $200 billion of, of economic benefits, GDP benefits across some of our largest countries. Thank you all for those thoughtful words. What I would like to do is to round us out. If you think about the next normal, the next normal in ASEAN, the next normal in the region, what is the one piece of advice, the one sentence of advice you have for the senior executives listening to this uh, podcast? Let me start with you, uh, Joy Deep. So, Oliver, I'll maybe provide two pieces of advice if it's okay with you. <laughs> First is, I think, around, around how you operate. And I think as executives, I think this is the time where you have to operate with a telescope in one eye and a microscope in the other. The long term is very, very critical, but the short term is here and now and very volatile. So you need to balance both. And I think that's an important skill. And the second thing I would say is, I think this is the time ever more so than before to be a tri-sector athlete. This is no longer about serving only your shareholders, providers of capital. It's also about how you serve society and the impact that you have dealing with governments. And I think the importance of being a tri-sector athlete could not be more than now. So learn how to build those skills. Those would be my two pieces of advice. Thank you. D.Y. Um, the old adage goes, no man is an island. And I would argue similarly, no government in today's world can be an island either. Uh, and my advice and hope would be that each government starts to look much more externally and in a mode of collaboration with the private sector in their individual countries, but also with governments across the region and with private sector across the region. Thank you. Kaushik. ASEAN will be volatile. Enjoy the volatility. Enjoy the diversity. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you to Kaushik, to Joy Deep and DY. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. Stay safe. Have a great day.
You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey and Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com/futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you.